Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us fresh ears to hear your uh, word to us today. And by your Holy Spirit, that you would increase our faith to believe these and to live our lives based on them. In Christ's name and for your glory, I pray. Amen. On Monday this week, I took a walk uh, through the neighborhood, across the street, through the neighborhood, and then sometimes I'll make my way where there's some shops. There's a Barnes and Nobles over there, and so I went into Barnes and Nobles on Monday and uh, was looking at the magazines, and I saw this magazine uh, dedicated, well, it was a, a special uh, feature article about <clears throat> the science of happiness. And uh, it was featuring this uh, scientist, this lady who teaches at Yale University. She teaches the most popular class on campus, uh, the science of happiness. And in fact, it's so popular that at one point, a thousand students enrolled in this class and they had to move the class to a big auditorium. I saw pictures of this class that looked like a big church almost filled, um, every seat filled as these students were listening about how to be happy. And I thought, you know, here is a prestigious, one of the most prestigious universities in the world and presumably most of these students have come from very privileged backgrounds and they're hungry to learn how to be happy. We have a happiness problem in the United States. There's depression, there's anxiety, there's suicide. In a land of abundance and plenty, uh, at a time where we're living longer than our grandparents and great-grandparents certainly, uh, there's great material prosperity, longevity, endless information and entertainment, and yet people are searching for happiness. How, how can we be happy? Now, some of the, um, the discoveries that these scientists have made, we can, as Christians, agree with. Uh, we can say amen to. They, they talk about that you need community to be happy. And we believe that, too. We're called... Not to live our faith alone, but in community, in the body of Christ. And there are certain practices, they say, you need to practice things like gratitude uh, and, and prayer. And so there's many things that kind of overlap with our understanding of who God made us, how God made us. But there's something that's missing in these uh, scientists' report. And you're not going to give it, get it from a brain scan or, or a survey. And it is this, it's the teaching of Jesus on how to be happy. Because Jesus said that the, the, the key to happiness for us as human beings is to live in the kingdom of God, who is our creator. And um, in fact, before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that Jesus was going throughout the synagogues and the cities in Galilee, and he was preaching about just that, living in the kingdom of God, living under the rule, the authority, and the care of God. And um, Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, this is, this is how you're going to be happy. The word that's translated blessed, 
the Greek word that's translated blessed here in these Beatitudes, these famous Beatitudes, can be translated as happy. But as one dictionary says, a dictionary of the Greek uh, New Testament, happiness here is in the sense of being in a special condition, thereby realizing happiness. The special condition you live in, and therefore you're happy. And the special condition that Jesus says is life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom. Life under the rule and the care of God, your creator. And so, and what the Beatitudes is doing is Jesus is instructing disciples on how to live in this kingdom. How to be happy. And it's full of paradox. Number one, be happy by being sad. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, no, I'm sorry. Be happy by being uh, poor. That's number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That, that is the starting point. That is the entryway into a happy life, is to acknowledge spiritual poverty. Um, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are spiritually bankrupt. They know, they, they've realized they're spiritually bankrupt, so they're going to come to God uh, with empty hands to receive what God can give them. You see, if I come to God... And say, God, here is my righteousness. Here's my good works. Here's my religiosity. Here's my goodness. Um, does that not impress you, God? <laughs> or even if I come to God and say, God, here is my sin and my guilt and my shame. But I'm going to hang on to this because it's so bad. I don't believe you can do anything about it. I'm coming to God gripping something then I can't receive what He wants to give me. But if I come with empty hands, like we do to the Lord's table, we come with empty hands. We come in a place of reception. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they're going to receive this kingdom. So, you, you can't receive if your hands are full. So, question for us, for me, is have I done that? Have I come to God with empty hands, with a sense of my own spiritual ruin? My, my sense of, as we sing, Lord, I need you. Am I still coming to God with empty hands? Because this is an ongoing process of discipleship. So that's, that's beatitude number one. I know I have to be careful on time here because there's eight of these. So I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible. And pay attention to my time. Each of these deserve a sermon. I can just make a couple comments. So the other, the other way to be happy, the, the, the other dimension, the other part of this journey, to be happy, to be blessed, is, as I said, uh, to be happy by being sad, <laughs> by mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What kind of mourning is God talking about here? It's Christ talking about here. Well, God... God is the comforter of all kinds of mourners, people who are grieving all kinds of things. Um, death and illness. Uh, he's the comforter of those who are very aware of their failure and their broken dreams and life is not turning out how they thought it was going to turn out and how they planned. God is the comforter 
of all kinds of grief. He is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction. And so there's a blessed truth there that God can comfort us in all of our affliction. But here, I think Jesus is talking about a specific kind of mourning. And that is a mourning over sin. A mourning over our own spiritual poverty and our own brokenness before God. A godly sorrow. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 that there is such a thing as a godly sorrow that brings about repentance, that brings about salvation. A mourning over our own sin. And through the centuries, the wisdom of the church teaches the goodness of mourning over our sin. The, the gift, really, of mourning over our sin and uh, our need to repent because we don't naturally see that about ourselves. It's a gift that God gives us to see our need for His forgiveness so that we can be healed. The old church fathers used the term compunction. Compunction. A puncture of the heart that can lead to the gift of tears. The gift of tears. The gift of mourning over our own spiritual condition. And that gift of tears can be healing and cleansing in the presence of God. So, Jesus is promising that for those who mourn, who've been given this grace of mourning over their sins, they will be comforted. They will be comforted by the divine forgiveness that he offers. So, that's a way to be happy, to be sad over your own brokenness, your own sin, to mourn that. And to receive the forgiveness of God. Then, number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The background to this is our psalm that we read responsibly today, Psalm 37. And there we see that meekness, friends, is not weakness. Meekness is strength, because meekness is trusting in the goodness of God, even when you see wickedness at work in the world. See, uh, the, the psalmist is saying, trust in the Lord and do good. That's your job as the people of God. Do not fret over the wicked. Do not get envious over the wicked. But your job as the people of God is to trust God and do good. The word fret there is interesting. It's an interesting word picture. It comes from a word which means to glow and, and then to start to blaze. It's like a fire. It begins to glow and blaze. And the idea, I think, here is that we can look out at the brokenness of the world and the wickedness of the world and we can begin to glow and, and get angry about it and towards other people. And even jealous, he says, do not be envious of the wicked. Okay, I've been trying to live this life and the wicked are prospering. So there can be a sense of what is this worth? What's the value of this? And we have to watch that. This is a good word for me. I think it's a good word for many of us because we live in an age where our social media is about flaring us up, isn't it? Our social media is trying to teach us to fret about the world and not trust God. And so, did you hear what they're doing now? Did you see on Facebook? I can't believe it, what they're doing now. There is such a, a place. There's a place for righteous anger. But that can spill over 
into hatred and vindictiveness and a sense of vengeance. Our call is to trust God. This is his world. And, and to do good. And actually to pray for those who we're angry about. So Psalm 37 says, don't fret, don't blaze up, trust God, do good. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It belongs to him. And ultimately it belongs to his people. It belongs to the meek. It belongs to the trusting ones. So that's the third beatitude. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength and trusting in God because you know this is his world. And, and you know, as I heard somebody recently say, that we know the final chapter of history. We know where this is headed if we believe the word of God. The fourth beatitude is, the fourth way to be happy is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, they shall be satisfied. Jesus is asking us here, what is it that you're hungry for? What is that you that you desire? What is, that, is it that you're thirsting for? He's asking us to think about our desires. When you're hungry and thirsty, that's, that's what's on your mind. That's what you're after. You're after food. You're after drink. What is it that is, is stirring up desire? What are you pursuing? And Jesus says, now I'm going to tell you something that you can pursue that will give you satisfaction, that will give you fulfillment. And it's this. Righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which means a couple of things. One, being right with God. If you want to be right with God, Jesus can provide that for you. You can know that you're right with God now and for eternity through Him uh, by receiving the forgiveness of sin, by trusting in His life and death and resurrection, righteousness. There's another aspect of this, isn't it? And that is to be a, a righteous person, to grow in righteousness. We don't do that perfectly in this life, but we pursue it. And we're made to become more like Christ. And Jesus says, if that's what you're desiring, if you live in this kingdom that I am announcing, you come under the rule and reign of God through me, you will be righteous and I will help you grow in righteousness. And that will lead to satisfaction. We often hunger and thirst for things that give us a temporary fulfillment. And we're pleased with the temporary fulfillment for a season. And then we realize we can't get no satisfaction from it, even though we try. It's like, a, it's like a diet high in sugar, right? I mean, sugar will give you that dopamine hit, that hit of pleasure. And uh, it won't give you, though, long-term satisfaction because you burn through it. And as I was thinking about that and kind of doing a little more reading about sugar, which was convicting to me, the guy who likes chocolate and ice cream. But, you know, it also said that the more sugar you take in, the more you need to satisfy yourself. And you have to just keep upping the level of sugar. So you get into this cycle of I can't really feel that satisfaction I had with one scoop of ice cream. So I need two scoops of ice cream. It's this. The more you have, the more you're not satisfied with it. And so we can be like, you know, we can be like my kids when we, when we say, okay, kids, we're going to go through a season now. No more Flintstone cereal and we're not going to buy so much ice cream. Here's some fruits and vegetables. 
And they're like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> we don't want that. They don't think that's what they need. They, they need the sugar. And that's how we can be with God. That's how we can be with Christ. Christ is saying, I, here's, here's the way to really be fulfilled in your life. To be happy. To pursue righteousness. Are we trusting Jesus' word? Am I trusting Jesus' word? Or am I like the kids, my kids who say, I, no, I'll pass. Give me that Flintstone cereal again. Jesus says, I can give you lasting righteousness. And I can help you to grow to be a righteous person who blesses God and blesses others with his or her life. Are you directing your hunger and thirst to this, friends? To what Christ can give you? Righteousness? Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they will have mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will have mercy. Is there someone in your life to whom you need to show mercy? Someone in your home? Someone in your family? Someone in your circle of friends, someone maybe even in the church to whom you need to show mercy. Not giving that person what they deserve, but giving them what God has given you in Jesus Christ. What you don't deserve. Mercy and kindness and compassion. Let's be realistic. There are some people who hurt us so deeply and are so... Their, their brain and their heart is broken to the point that you really can't be in a close relationship with them because it's just going to be a cycle of brokenness. But what would it look like to be merciful to such a person that you can't be in close relationship with? What would that look like? What would that look like to be merciful to such a person in how you talk about them to others. Or how you think about them. Or what would it mean to be merciful to such a person who's hurt you so deeply? What would it look like to be merciful to them in your prayers about them? Jesus says that a merciful person is a person who's going to be happy. The person who's not vengeful, the person who's not scorekeeping. That's the happy person because they are going to have mercy. And I like what one commentator said, showing mercy doesn't earn us a place in the kingdom. It opens a person to receive the mercy of Jesus in the kingdom. The sixth way to be happy is purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. To be pure in heart means to be unmixed, to not have mixed motivations. And to be pure in heart means to not be hypocritical. Representing yourself externally one way, but internally there's something else going on. This is something that we have to battle for by the grace of God. Because, speaking for myself, there's always mixed motives. And I have to come back to, I have to come back to beatitude number one. Lord, I'm spiritually poor in this area. Will you help me to be more pure in heart? Religious leaders in Jesus' day were experts at external purity, weren't they? They were very good. They had their PhDs in the Mosaic Law, which about which was about external purity. The food laws, the kosher laws, what to touch, who to be involved with. They did not want to become impure by touching unclean, unclean feet, food or being around unclean people. 
And so they had devised this external purity code. But Jesus said about these religious rulers that they, he used this shocking image. He said, you're unwashed tombs. Or no, you're whitewashed tombs, he said. Whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you're full of death. You're full of wickedness and hypocrisy, he said. So they had this external purity, but they didn't have purity of what? Purity of heart. This is what Jesus calls us to. Purity of heart. The law of Moses was meant to train God's people in holiness, but never to teach them to put external purity in the place of heart purity. Jesus calls us to what matters most. Purity of heart. And his promise is that those who are pure in heart will see God. We see something of God now in Jesus Christ, but the fullness of that vision awaits us in heaven. And what a motivation that should be to all of us, because we love to see lovely things. We love to see, I mean, we're hardwired to love beauty and to love lovely things. That's why we go to the ocean and the mountains and we look up at the stars and we take pictures of sunsets and chubby babies because we love lovely things. We love to behold them. And to behold God in Christ is to behold a lovely Savior. And to see God in eternity will be to see the source of all that is lovely and good. And so that's what awaits those who are pursuing this beatitude, the pure in heart. I want, Lord, to be completely committed to you. Help me to grow in that. The seventh beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become sons of God. So here's a parable. Two old men were in a Bible study together, and they had been in this Bible study for years. During election season, one of the old men wore some political paraphernalia that the other old man found offensive. And he said so. And tempers flared up. The offended man left the Bible study that day angry. But later that week, while he was praying the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. His heart was softened, and he thought about the incident at the Bible study. And he came back to that Bible study, and he apologized to his friend. They both apologized to one another. They forgave one another. They made peace. They renewed their friendship. One of those men in this parable is now frail and weakening. The other is at home with the Lord. They would have been burdened in their last days if they had not pursued peace. Instead, they are blessed as sons of God because they followed the way of their Savior who shed his blood so that they could be at peace with God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The eighth beatitude is the greatest paradox of them all. It's a, it's a blessing, he says, to be persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Great is your reward in heaven. Old Matthew Henry, the old Puritan commentator, says that this beatitude about being blessed by being persecuted is mentioned twice. It's doubled because it's easy to doubt it. (laughs) But he says it's certain because it comes from Christ. Blessed are the persecuted. For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus is not saying go out and provoke people. Go out and be intentionally offensive to other people. No, he's not saying that. But he's saying when you are provoked, when you are rather persecuted, when you are reviled and slandered for righteousness sake, for standing with me. You will be blessed. You will be like the prophets of old who've always gone against the grain. When we stand with Jesus and what the scriptures say about righteousness, we should not be surprised that we might be called and reviled. We might be called names and reviled. This is happening, isn't it, in our culture today? When when we stand with what Jesus says about sin and righteousness, what the scriptures teach about sin and righteousness, what the church has always taught about sin and righteousness, especially in matters of sex and gender, when we stand for these things, we stand with Jesus, we stand with scripture, we should not be surprised if we're called names. Jesus said they did this to the prophets and much worse and calling them names. And there's people today who are experiencing much worse than being called names. But some people are losing jobs. And some people in the world are losing their life. Jesus calls us to believe in this paradoxical beatitude that there's something more important than the fleeting praise of man. And there's something more valuable than gaining acceptance. By agreeing with the current view. The current view which shifts around like dandelion seed in the wind. But rather standing with Christ and his word and being willing to pay the price. And that thing that is more valuable is life in the kingdom now and forever. So we are in blessed company when we're persecuted for Jesus' name and for righteousness sake. These are the descriptions of life in the kingdom of God. These are the ways that Jesus says you can be happy. You will be happy as a disciple if you follow these things. These are, you can consider these as instructions for discipleship. You see at verse 5, it was the disciples that came to him. These are not like, okay, you do these things and then you become a disciple. These are for people who are already committed to Christ and they're going to be growing and there's going to be bumps and missteps all along the way. But they're committed to Jesus as disciples and he's saying, okay, here, this is how you're going to live this life. You can consider this instructions for discipleship. And what, what happens to us in the Christian life is we need to go back to the instructions because... Oftentimes we, well, all the time, we are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we need to go back to the instructions. It's like my kids, one of my kids got a Christmas present. It was a hamster cage. 
And this was uh, a couple days after Christmas. And I saw her frustrated with this hamster cage. And she's trying to put these tubes and wasn't working together. And she stomps off and says, this is not going to work, you know. I said, well, here's something I've learned the hard way. Where's the instruction manual? I hate to say it, but you're going to have to read this thing, you know, because the creator knows how it works. So we're just going to have to take it slow. And that tube is backwards. And that door doesn't go like that. It's upside down. So let's just go step by step and learn what the maker says and follow. That's what these Beatitudes are. But it's a place of trust. We can not... We can decide to do it without the instructions or we can trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And so maybe this week you can go through this and maybe uh, prayerfully ask the Lord. You can come in the spirit of beatitude number one. Lord, I'm poor in spirit. Maybe we're so poor in spirit that we have a hard time even desiring these things. And we can come to him and say, Lord, I'm so poor in spirit that I don't really desire these things like I should. They don't excite me. But maybe you're at a place where you're feeling that you need, that the way of the world, the way the world says you can be happy is not working for you. And you can come back to this and say, Lord, okay, speak to me. Which ones do I really need to focus on? And by His grace, He will help you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us to do that, to trust in your word, and to come to you out of a place of spiritual poverty, that we might grow to be disciples who are demonstrating something of your light and love to a broken and needy world. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.